Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, let's go right back to the phones. And joining us as he does almost every Saturday at 10 o'clock. Sometimes he gets one of his his associates to fill in for him because he claims he's busy, Nate Zielinski. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'll give you a pass for last week. It was kind of an important day. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we had a great celebration of our uh, 11th wedding anniversary, so uh, it, it was a great time. And, uh, yeah, definitely got to do that stuff, especially with the uh, the upcoming fall. Obviously, a lot going on. So, uh, yeah, definitely got to keep everything happy. And, folks, if you don't know it, he married so far over his head, it's ridiculous, just so you know. <laughs> she not only is better looking than him, but she's a better hunter, too. So we'll just we'll leave that. You know, seriously, Nate. Um, Dan Coyle was talking about doves and what a great way to get hunters out. Even if either, if you, you're an avid hunter, it gets you started in the the firearm seasons because you kind of get, you get that anxiety. You want to get out there. And for new hunters, dove hunting is just fantastic. You know, Terry, there is nothing better than dove hunting. I mean, everything about it, it is a lot of action. There's a lot of readily available property to do it for the public land hunter. It's warm weather. There's minimal equipment required. I mean, you could definitely have a a bird dog to help you, but you can literally go out in blue jeans and a T-shirt and pull off a dove hunt. So there's so much opportunity in the dove hunting world. It is literally built for everybody. I mean, from uh, you know, from young to old, from new to the sport to a seasoned veteran, there's nothing better. And I cannot wait to get out in the field. Uh, you know, this is a, a time-honored tradition. Um, you know, obviously, I had traditions with my father in the fishing and hunting world, but my kids are seven years old this year. They have never missed a dove opener. Uh, I mean, I literally was out there with them in car seats. Uh, taking them dove hunting, and they've never missed it, and, and we will definitely not miss it. It's one of those things that no matter what, uh, we definitely make a, make a point to go out there and, and chase some doves together. So it's so fun, to, especially this. Like, my kids aren't hunting yet, um, but, you know, they get to go along. They get to be a part of it. They get to help me, you know, collect the birds out of the field. Um, it's just, you know, they, they look for the birds. They're very active in it. So whether even if you're not participating in the sport, it's a great one to bring new hunters that maybe are even thinking about getting into the sport bring them along because uh, again they're a little bit more involved in some of the other hunting sports that we do so so very neat and uh, yeah I cannot wait for it and you know we kind of wanted to give some tips out there I actually had a lot of a lot of questions this week people asking hey it's my first time dove hunting you know is there any tips and honestly this is one of those sports that you can know nothing about just go out there sit in the field and you're probably going to have success um, if you want to take it one step further I just try to think about kind of the the habits of a dove so you know I actually went out scouting this week i kind of watched them and i kind of have a a three-part approach so i hunt the the early morning actually on this little section uh it's just kind of a a ditch row but either way it's where the birds fly coming from the trees to the field so my early first hour or two i'm sitting where the birds are actually flying from field to tree so from roost to field uh i should say and then from that point on i make a quick switch uh right around eight o'clock in the morning and then i sit by water and i go watch these birds and and i hunt them as they're going to water um and in midday actually have them kind of going back to the roost a little bit um so so i kind of have a three-part plan but regardless just 
be uh, you know, or observe, I should say, where the doves are going, what they're doing. Um, if you can line yourself up into their right patterns, the right flyway, it can drastically increase your success. And no matter how good of a shooter you are, they are a fast, high-action bird. Uh, so getting as close as possible definitely is going to help you out uh, in those regards. So knowing some patterns and getting in that right position can definitely help you increase your success for the day. Now, I have a question for you. And I, uh, when you hunt doves, if you see them, a lot of times they'll roost on fences during the day and things. Do you tend to try to shoot them on the wing or do you, do you take some that are roosted or what do you recommend for people? You know, personally, I think it's all all on the wing. So I shoot all the birds when they're flying for a couple of reasons. Number one, obviously, I think that the sporting aspect of it is much greater while they're flying. But number two, anytime you're near a fence, that barrel of that gun's going to be pointed low. And that can be for everything. That can be from somebody sitting next to you. All of a sudden, you're at ear level with the barrel and the break of that, that, that firearm. Uh, so one, you're creating a lot more noise for the people around you. Obviously, anytime your gun is pointed flat, there's just more danger with the bystanders around you and then three the direction that that barrel is pointing if you're shooting on a fence line obviously your projectiles are staying very low whether you have a dog or other people's dog it just brings on some situations that might not necessarily be be the best of options uh so i'm pretty much 100 percent shooting them on the fly now if you do have a youth hunter that is struggling with that fly if they land in a tree above you uh that's another option so as long as your barrel is pointed straight up in the air and you have a youth hunter uh, or somebody new to the sport and they want to try to take a shot while the bird is resting uh obviously there's no laws against the things like that but i think the sporting aspect and all that's just a little bit greater uh when you're shooting them on the on the fly for sure and you talked about access you know we have walk-in access for doves we have lots of public state wildlife areas where there's doves um you can ask farmers still that aren't even in the walk-in access and even parks like um, Bar Lake has a dove hunting area. So there's just is a tremendous opportunity for it. Let's move on while we still got time. And you, I know you want to update us on what's going on with the elk. Absolutely. So, Jay, i got to throw one more thing out there on the doves. The last thing to talk about is people are talking about access. And I know that a lot of your river bottoms out east, um, you know, get overblown. Everybody's looking for, you know, hunting in the oak trees. And they're always looking for trees. And those sections tend to gather a lot of hunters. But the fields are so often overlooked. Everybody sees a flat field, a sunflower field, a grain field. And they think they have to be by trees. But there are so many birds out feeding at certain periods of the day. Hunting a field can be as productive if not even more productive sometimes in the trees so don't overlook that there is so much public access on these flat fields and everybody overlooks them for doves so that's huge also i can't tell you how many doves i see on the lower hotter portions of our national forest everybody drives out east when in reality i see so many doves kind of in the forest areas um so don't overlook that if you're if you don't want to make a far drive or you're worried about finding a spot there's a lot of national forest in the mountains that has doves on it so kind of keep that in mind it's just as a helpful tip uh if you're looking for areas to go so so definitely keep that uh but then we definitely do we have to switch turns um coming up here september 2nd is the archery combined season for elk deer we have bear opportunities Everything starts this week. This Thursday is going to be a major day, uh, and again, just much anticipated. We had some little colder front kind of come through, cooled things off. Uh, it feels like fall in the air, and we're very excited about this upcoming hunting season. No, it, it really does. It really does. Uh, so have you been out watching the elk, or have you been too busy scouting the doves? 
<laughs> Absolutely, Terry. I've been staying on top of everything. On Thursday, I will actually be uh, be hunting bear in Colorado. Uh, so my first species of choice, I'm going to target bears, uh, just why I have a current pattern. They're on ac- acorns, uh, feeding pretty good. I have them on some berries, but more importantly, I have a very good water hold that these bears are fairly active on. Uh, I have quite a few bears coming into the area, so it's really going to be a, an opportunity if the right bear shows up uh, for the one that I'm actually you know in target of. Um, so I'll be bear hunting, but the elk and deer is great. We actually had a great live feed discussion this week on this. But in regards, if you have both elk and deer, I really encourage prioritizing um, you know, your species and how you're going to hunt them, which ones you hunt first, and how you go about it. Because um, obviously everybody is going into the national forest or going into the hunting season very excited, right? Everybody looks forward to this for 11 months. Um, you know, They've been training, scouting, shooting. They've been living and breathing hunting. Um, and just everything is built up in anticipation. And with that, we see a lot of hunters get kind of overeager and sometimes, I don't want to say ruin things, but but they can just get too excited right out of the gate. So in regards, uh, if you are an elk hunter, you know, there's so many ways to pursue elk in Colorado, but you have hunting a water hole, which is probably my biggest suggestion, but probably least used in the state of Colorado. You have general spot and stock, and this is not a calling approach. This is knowing where they are, trying to sneak up on them uh, in whatever, you know, area they're located and then your third fashion is obviously calling now everybody watches the videos they watch the tv shows everybody has been driving to work blowing their calls you know getting prepped for the season um and when the elk are in a rut stage and when everything is happening there's nothing better than calling to elk but early like this i'm hearing bugles right now so the animals are talking but the true rut has not really started yet so so many hunters will go into their their season on thursday and they will over call to animals that aren't ready and all they're going to do is damage them uh for the upcoming season they get call shy it's just one of those things that just happens um you know when these animals live in the woods every day they know the natural sounds and when there's a handful of bugles here and there and all of a sudden overnight you know there's hundreds and hundreds of more calls even though they sound realistic the elk are like hey something's wrong i don't know what happened but all of a sudden it went from you know very few calls to mass calling um so we always just say number one if you're if you're going out in the elk woods you want to mimic the elk so if they're not talking you are not talking if they are talking then you can call back to them but always let them lead the conversation um but if you do have elk and deer tags I always suggest start off with a deer hunt early in the season. When it comes down to this, your deer are in a very steady summer pattern right now. Once they lose their velvet, which is going to be sometime after that first week of September, we always say we can see the velvet come off as early as the 7th, 8th, as late as maybe the 15th, 16th. But once that velvet comes off, their patterns will change. It is notorious. I don't know what happens. I don't know what they do. That velvet comes off, their patterns break. So I always encourage hunters that have both tags, because so many people do, is I put 100% focus on hunting the deer first, why they're in their summer patterns, why they repeat their patterns, why it's easy. And then once I, I hopefully create success in that deer, by that time, you're going to start seeing some more rut signs from the elk. Uh, the elk are going to increase their daytime activity. They're going to spend more time on their feet. Um, and that's going to be the opportunity to, to really create that success on that elk. So if you're planning things out and you have both tags, I always say focus on the deer first, then move over to the elk. Because uh, it's so hard not to call the elk. But again, you don't want to do that and hurt yourself if the time's not right. 
No, you're absolutely right. Um, by the way, tell us again, you meant you went over it briefly, but you're doing another one of your live series this week. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So we have we have live feeds going on. We just had one actually last week, and that's the one I'd really encourage everybody to listen to. We hosted it on Tuesday uh, from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Facebook page as well as their hunting Instagram page, and it's on their YouTube channel. But if you go to Facebook, just go to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, you can scroll down and you can watch the live feed we did on Tuesday covering everything that we just talked about here, but in about an hour-long conversation. We talked to a Colorado Parks and Wildlife officer, uh, Mr. Casey Westbrook, and we talked about the exact thing that's happening in Colorado right now, where the elk are in the rut, what actually is the rut, what causes the rut, how long does it last, Uh, so all of that kind of stuff. So right now, I'd really encourage if you have an archer tag here in Colorado, uh, go go to any of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife outlets and watch that live feed from last Tuesday. Uh, I promise you, it is chock full of information that will drastically help your odds this upcoming hunting season uh, and increase your odds for sure. You know, and the last comment I have, you mentioned you're going to be hunting bear this year. I don't know if people understand, we have an extremely robust bear population in Colorado. Not only do we need to thin that out, but it, what a great hunting opportunity. It is, Terry. You know, our bears are great eating. We have a lot of good grass. So so many people kind of, you know, look at them as a negative source as far as a food source. They, they are a great animal to eat, which is number one. Two, like you said, there's more bear tags available uh, than about any other state that I know of. I talked to a friend in Wisconsin last week who he's waited 15 years to get a bear tag. And in Colorado, uh, we have list A tags, list B tags. We even have a handful of units that are list C tags. So list C, you can literally buy multiple tags. So this year in Colorado, right now in my pocket, I have three bear tags and I have the opportunity to purchase more. So we have a lot of bear hunting opportunity, uh, and our bear population is absolutely thriving. Um, you know, without being able to hunt them in spring or use bait or dogs, they are a challenge to hunt, uh, and that's why that population is skyrocketing. So I encourage everybody, even if you're not actually in the pursuit of, of necessarily hunting bear, if you have an elk or deer tag, it's a great opportunity to, to p- purchase a bear tag uh, to go along with your elk or deer tag. Uh, and if you have those opportunities, at least you have a tag in your pocket, and you can definitely capitalize on an awesome animal to hunt here in Colorado. All right, my friend, we have to go. But if people want to get a hold of you or more information, absolutely. You can always go to our Facebook page, Tightline Outdoors. My personal Facebook page, which is Nate Zelensky. Uh, I have my Instagram account, which is Nate Zelensky. But just search Tightline Outdoors, Nate Zelensky. You'll get a hold of us. Uh, we have amazing fishing going on. We have all of our hunting going on. Uh, So a ton of stuff happening, and we're just going to try to capitalize on all of it. All right. We will talk to you next week. Talk to you soon. All right. Nate Zielinski, always a great source of information. We're going to take a quick time out. Then uh, the folks from Jack's are going to join us, and we're going to talk about the drainage up and down the pooter, uh, the lakes and river, where to fish, where not to fish, and what's going on there right now on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. And speaking of Jack's, let's go to the phones. And joining us from the Jackson Fort Collins Fishing Department is Dave Gross. Good morning, Dave. Hi, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well. And, you know, we're getting a lot of questions about the Poudre River area and because of the fires last year and the floods this year. And I know you fish that area a lot, so I thought we'd go through some of the fishing up and down the Poudre and the, the lakes up there. And I think we should start. I know you go up and down there. 
Do you have a pretty good idea? Is the highway open? Is river access open? What lakes are open and closed? Before we even get into which ones to fish, what's closed up there? Do you know? So the big flood was at Black Hollow, which is just below the hatchery, rustic area. So all the water below that, most of it's open, but the fishing's poor. We lost a lot of fish, so I really recommend not even fishing there. If you get up above the hatchery, that is open. The area from Black Hollow to the hatchery is closed. But if you get above the hatchery, you can fish all through that area, all the way up to Chambers, Joe Wright. You're able to fish all that. The water's clear. Bugs are in good shape. There's been red quills hatching. That's a mayfly. Caddis in the evenings. Uh, trico spinners in the mornings. And then, of course, all your terrestrials, grasshoppers, chubby Chernobyls, fishing a hopper dropper have all been very effective. Um, I love hopper dropper this time of the year. It's one of my uh, favorite ways to fish. I talked about it in the first hour. Uh, the fact that you know a lot of we have a lot of new fly fishermen. I, I, I'm sure you see that coming into the the store, Dave. And a lot of them, they're you know first of all they think they have to make a 60 foot cast, and they and they think and they worry so bad about their loop and getting the line out there. Uh, but really, when you're fishing a hopper dropper, most of the time the fish are close to shore. You don't have to cast very far. If you splash it down, that's how a hopper hits the water anyway. And if you uh, and if you don't get exactly the right drift, those hoppers are a lot of times fighting against the current. So it's a really forgiving presentation, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Yep. Don't need to. Usually, only need to be able to cast 15 yards at the most, and doesn't always have to be a perfect presentation. Now, I'm sure you have a lot of hopper droppers, uh, a lot of flies. I know you have a lot of flies available at the Fort Collins store. Any hopper particular patterns that you like? Standard Schroeder's parachute hopper. Um, Depending on where you're at, how fast the water's running, size 8. Sometimes going down to size 12 is good. And then your chubby Chernobyls, which is in between a ant, Chernobyl ant and a grasshopper, those work great and they float forever. So even if you're not getting the perfect drift or you're sinking it, it pops right back up and you can just keep going and not have to be putting floating floating on it all the time. Do you uh do you have any particular favorites for your dropper or do you not always use a dropper or do you change it up depending on the hatch? As far as a generic all-the-time one, a red copper john in a size 16 or a purple prince or a purple psycho prince in a size 14 or 16. But then, you know, changing up to match match the hatch like red quills right now, so a pheasant tail works very well. It looks pretty similar to the red quill nymph. Usually those are going to be a size 16, even down to a size 18. And and I know when we get into the lakes, we're going to talk about some of the lakes up there real quick here. You uh, A lot of times we encourage people that aren't fly anglers, or even if you just need to get out further, to use a fly in a bubble. 
and I know your family fishes with you quite a bit, and you fly fish more, and they conventional fish more. Do you ever use a fly in a bubble to present that hopper dropper on the river? Um, on the lakes, yes, but on the river, that can be tough just because you end up getting a little too much drag. Um, but if you're in some slower water, with nice long run, then, yeah, you can um, you can do that. And even you can almost, if you have a long enough spinning rod, you can do a little bit of what we call mending where you just kind of pick up your, your line and kind of try to get it up current just to, so the bubble doesn't start cruising down the river too fast. Let's let's talk about the lakes up there. We've got lakes like Zimmerman, Barnes, Long Draw, Joe Wright. Uh, what, what's open and what's not up there? Do you know? So Long Draw Road is closed, which isn't very clear on the USDA Cameron Peak Fire map, but the road is closed, so you can't get to Peterson, you can't get to Long Draw. Um, Chambers is open, Barnes Meadows is open, Joe Wright open, um, Zimmerman, you can hike up to Zimmerman. Um, now you it's can hike, hike down to Laramie Lake and Lost Lake. And Chambers, the Chambers Campground Road is closed, I believe, so you have to take the Laramie Road and then walk down to the lake, is that right? Right. Now, you mentioned one, we're going to run out of time, but you mentioned one that's one of my favorites there. And that's Joe Wright. With all the new anglers we've got out here, you know, it's first of all, it's stocked with grayling, and they're really prolific. So it's a different fish than most people will catch in Colorado. And it has a number of species. It has cutthroat in it also. And it even has some lake trout, I believe. But what an opportunity those graylings provide. I don't know you and your family fish those a lot. How do you approach Joe Wright when you, get, when you go there? Flying a bubble is a great way to fish there. That way you can cover a lot of water. You can do a lot of different presentations, whether it be a reeling back a dry fly really slow or letting a nymph get just under the surface. Or if they're not rising, putting a beadhead nymph on there and letting it sink down a couple feet or a small woolly bugger, usually an olive or a black size 10 or 12 woolly bugger or a leech will make them go crazy, and they're usually pretty aggressive, the grayling are. The other types of trout can be tough at times. Um, they've also put tiger trout in there, so if someone has never caught a tiger trout, uh, you got an opportunity to catch tiger trout. And they've been getting up over 20 inches in there, so they're doing well. They like to eat the baby grayling, so they're growing, they're growing fast. Well, and the grayling themselves are so prolific. They're, most of them aren't huge. Most of them are probably, what do you think, 8 to 12 inches? 8 to 12. But, if you get a 14-incher, you've got yourself a really nice one. Take a picture yeah. of it. They're gorgeous, and let those big ones go. But taking a couple of those smaller ones home, they're great table fare, and they're really prolific. Yep. So, so I, that's a great way. By the way, folks, if you want to see the fly-in-the-bubble fishing on Joe Wright, I did a uh, YouTube video. It's on my channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. I actually have two Joe Wright videos. One, I'm in a float tube with a fly rod, which is another great way to fish Joe Wright. But another one, I'm standing on shore with a fly in a bubble, just like Dave is talking about, and just fishing from shore and just having a great time catching one right after another. 
Dave, if somebody wants to get set up with all this stuff, they, you've got everything. Uh, you, we were talking earlier in the week, your inventory's improved. Pretty much can fix them up with everything they need right there at Jack's, right? We sure can. We've got all the flies, print snips, and for your grayling and woolly buggers, and we've got all the dry flies for the river and the nymphs for the river, and we've got bubbles, and we're in, we're in decent shape. It's still a struggle getting stuff, but we're in pretty good shape. All right, my friend, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Good fishing. You bet. That's Dave Gross from the Fort Collins uh, Jacks. Uh, I'll tell you what, folks, the lower part of the pooter, I talked to the some of the people from Parks and Wildlife and stuff, too. Probably, if we, we probably didn't get a total fish kill, but probably isn't very productive. That upper part is great. And the... Um, the lakes up there, though, Joe Wright, if you just want to drive up this time of the year, everything is so beautiful. The colors are coming out. What a great opportunity. We're going to take a time out, and we come back, we're going to talk about some stuff a little closer to home in the warm water species with Ronnie Castiglione on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors and 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones, and joining us from the Fishful Thinker group is Ronnie Castiglione. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Mr. Terry Wickstrom. How's it going this morning? It's You know, it's a beautiful day out there, and normally I'd say I need to be outdoors somewhere, but Karen and I are getting ready. We're leaving on a Minnesota trip tomorrow morning, so my thoughts are kind of already on some of those lakes up there. But that doesn't mean there isn't some great fishing going on right around the state of Colorado, and something happens when we get the evenings cool off, the water start, temperatures start to come down a little, we have a lot of shad-based forage, and that presents an opportunity with fish like wipers and white bass, doesn't it? Absolutely, Terry. It's definitely that time of year where these fish are going to start gathering out there in, the, in these lakes, chasing those bait fish. Uh, and it's a lot of fun when you time that bite right, Terry. If you can get out there and you, and you time the conditions right and, you, and you, everything lines up for you, um, you can have some of the best days of fishing you'll ever have in your life. A white bass and wipers are notorious for traveling in schools and pushing shad around the lake and when they push them to the surface uh they can absolutely churn on them terry and it's you know i like to describe it as really like the closest we can get here in colorado to getting that saltwater feel um you know it's really easy to find videos and see you know tuna and jack ravels and fish like that just absolutely tearing up mullet and pogies down there in the in the salt water well if you time it right here in colorado and you get out and conditions are good you can get that same kind of action where you just pull up and those fish are absolutely destroying the bait fish on the surface and you know it's it's an opportunity to get out and have a lot of fun terry it's one of the funnest bites of the year and it's one of my favorites Oh, it's one of mine, too. So how do you time it? I know there is no exact science to it. It can be frustrating because you can spend time on the water and not see a boil, or you can be out there and see one after another. But how do you optimize your time? Terry, it's probably the most condition-driven bite that I search for every year. And so some of the keys that I've really dialed in on over the years as far as when this type of thing's going to happen for me, uh, one, it's this time of year. So as I flip through my phone and I start looking at pictures, I start seeing a lot of white bass and things like that historically on my phone from all my pictures over the year. So I know late August in through September and through October is really the, the time of year that I'm going to start looking for it. 
Uh, one of the big things I'm going to look for, Terry, is I'm going to look for low wind conditions. That's probably the biggest key out of all of it. Uh, if you get out there and the wind's blowing any harder than 10 miles an hour, it's just not going to happen for you, Terry. The wind's just blowing too much. The bait fish are still going to be getting chased, but they're not going to get pushed all the way to the surface a lot of times. And even if they are, if the wind's blowing that much, you're going to struggle to spot it at a distance. So I check the forecast and I'm really, ideally, I'm looking for very, very low winds, something like one to three mile an hour forecast. Uh, if it's blowing a little bit harder than that, you know, five to seven, that's not so bad. But you get up around 10 miles an hour and you get a little bit too much chop on the water, um, I'm going to give up on it, Terry. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've tried to time that particular aspect of it. Pulled up to the lake, Terry, thought to myself, all right, driving by the lake, it looks calm. Open the door to get out to the A&S inspector and a big gust of wind comes blowing out. And I know right off the bat, well, that's not going to happen. But the beauty of that bite thing, Terry, is that you don't have to commit to it all day. It's usually going to be an early in the morning or late in the evening bite. So if you're going to the lake and you think conditions are right and you get there and the wind is going to blow, well, then, you know, you just give up on it and you go chase walleyes, you go chase smallmouth, you go chase largemouth, that kind of a thing. So, you know, low wind, low light conditions early and late in the day, those are crucial and a lot of times I'm really also going to be looking for a little bit of cloud cover. Primarily, it has to do with that light aspect of that bite, Terry. If I can get a little bit of cloud cover, even if it's not directly overhead cloud cover, but it's in the east, if I'm looking out towards Kansas and I see clouds, well, then that'll keep that sun from popping through, and it'll stretch that initial kind of hour that you get right before sunup and it'll stretch it out. And a lot of times that bite will last three or four hours into the day. Um, those are really the big keys. Water temperature is a big deal, Terry. And it tends to also be that sometimes real, real high pressure systems will shut those fish down. But that's not always the case, Terry. I've been out there on real high pressure, bright blue bird days, and I've seen that bite go off for the first hour of the morning, and it's been a lot of fun as well. But those are kind of the, the few things that I really try to key on, on Terry, right there as far as conditions. Now, I have a question. I want to get back to how you approach them presentation-wise when you do find them, but I know on other lakes, I know you fish Boyd a lot, and there's some of the Eastern Plains Lake that have a lot of shad and white bass and wipers, and we talked to the folks from John Martin earlier today, which has a great white bass population. But on other lakes, if the wind was a little more or during the middle of the day and I couldn't find any boils, a lot of times I could use my electronics and still find those schools of bait fish and maybe fish below them with another presentation. Do you, do you try that at times? I do, Terry. In open water, it tends to be that you end up having to troll around a bit to find them. And sometimes those, those white bass and those wipers will key in, and, and you'll be able to catch them just trolling. And if that's the case, then you can go about doing that. You can get vertically on top of them, and you can jig them and, and, and get them on spoons and things like that. Blade baits can also be effective. Um it tends to be a little bit later in the year for me when that bite starts to go. Once the bait fish start to die off and we're getting some of them falling through the water column, then that vertical approach really tends to be key. Um, earlier, you know, late August into September like this, 
Um, you can find them. You can fish them vertically. But the biggest problem is is that they're moving, Terry, and they're moving very, very fast. So you could troll around, get on top of a big school of bait fish, and see you know a whole bunch of returns in under them and think to yourself, this is it. This is going to be the deal. Stop the boat, get out, and drop on them. And everybody loads up right away. And a few seconds later, those fish are gone. They've moved off. Um, as the water gets real cold later in the year, you know, especially when we get down into 40-degree water temperatures, that vertical approach can be really, really good. And a lot of times we'll really kind of key in on structure and try to find where bait fish is hitting structure. If you can find that, then if you go down to a lake like Pueblo, for example, uh, you can absolutely blast uh, the wipers in that lake vertically um, real, real deep when you can find bait fish hitting the structure. So it's just kind of timing that whole deal and understanding, you know, what the fish are doing and what the bait fish are doing, Terry. All right, so let's get back. We found the bubbles. We got the, the weight. We've got the boils. The fish are coming up. What kind of presentations do you use? How do you approach them? Well, key on all that, Terry, is going to be, first of all, you know, approaching it with the right setup. So you really want to come at it with the longest casting rig you've got. Your rod that you can throw the farthest distance and the most accurate. So for me, that tends to be a seven-foot medium action or medium power, fast action spinning rod. And I'm usually going to have that spooled up with some sort of super line. Uh, nanofill really, really shines at this kind of a thing, Terry. Eight-pound nanofill will cast a mile on that sort of a presentation. Uh, I put a fluorocarbon leader on the end of that. And, it, you know, it might be the difference between 10 or 15 feet in casting distance with a little bit different setup. But that 10 or 15 feet a lot of times is going to make the difference between you putting that presentation right in on those boils or falling short of those boils. And when those fish are really keyed in, Terry, and they're seriously chasing the bait fish, unless you put that presentation right there into that zone that they're eating those other fish, they're not going to turn off and come 10 feet to get your presentation, Terry. They've got plenty of shad right there in front of them. So it's really about putting it right there in the business, and then you'll get them to bite. Now, as far as the presentations, there's a lot of different things that you can throw on there that will work. Uh, small jerk baits tend to be something that I like to use a lot, but I'm talking about jerk baits that run very, very shallow, Terry. I want a bait that's going to run in the top three foot of the water column, and if it's going to run just about a foot deep, even better, Terry. I'm looking for something that's going to be very, very shallow. Surface presentations can also work very well in this scenario. Walking baits tend to be what I get the most action on as far as surface baits go. But sometimes they'll bite a popper, Terry. Sometimes they'll bite like a, a Chopo-style bait or a Whopper Plopper, something like that. Um, it's really something that you want to move fast, though. You don't want it to sit there. You don't want to be working that popper slow if you're throwing a popper. You almost want to be walking that popper just like a walking bait. You want to make the presentation look wounded, look like it's scared, look like it's trying to get away. Um, another another good one to go to, Terry, is uh, something like a, like a spinner, um, like a Panther Martin or a Meps, uh, but a heavier one, a good size one, like a half-ounce panther martin in a straight silver color like that or a silver and black that's a really really good shad imitation and you can throw those presentations a really long way because they're just a big chunk of metal a little george is another presentation i've gone to that's probably my longest casting presentation i can put a three quarter ounce little george on and it's a very small bait terry it's only about an inch and three quarters long 
but I can huck that thing, you know, almost all of my braid all the way off my spinning reel, which I know is right around 100 yards or so. I can launch that thing all of that 100 yards, carry out a real long cast. Um, so that can be a good choice. The key is on any of those presentations, real, real accurate cast, being very fast about your cast, Terry. If you see those fish rising and busting, you got to get that cast in on them right away. If you make that cast and you don't get bit on that cast initially right away and those fish have moved and now they're turning 15 feet to the left of where you casted, you go ahead and reel that cast in as fast as you can, and you make your next cast right out in front of the direction they're going and get that bait right in their nose and work it really, really fast and erratic. They'll load up on it. you know. And I tell people nine times out of ten, if you make the right cast and your timing's good, they're going to bite it, Terry. You know? and, and that's really the, the key on being successful in this sort of situation. I couldn't agree with you more, Ronnie. We are out of time, but if people would like more information, is there a way to get a hold of you? Yeah, they can email email me, uh, Ronnie at Fishful Thinker. You can find me, Ronnie Castiglione, on Facebook, and you can message me on that. And it's definitely that time of year, Terry. You can chase this bite. It's going to start here in northern Colorado, and it's going to work its way south. So lakes like Jackson, like uh, Boyd, those are the ones that are really going to get going. Horsetooth, to a smaller extent, will also start start that same kind of thing and then as we work our way south lakes like pueblo is going to have wipers doing that i hear a little bit later and john martin like you were talking about that's another really really good lake to head to and kind of look for this sort of a thing terry and i'll throw out this real quick i'll let you go terry but these are also excellent table fares so if you're looking for fish to harvest uh, there's no harm in taking a few of these white bass. They get to be really good size. Um, if you clean them properly and fillet those bad boys out, they make some of the fe- best fish tacos you'll ever have, Terry. So harvest a few, let a few, of the, you know, let a few go. Don't take them all, but uh, it's a good opportunity to get out and harvest some fish. All right, my friend. When I get back from Minnesota, we have to get out on the water. We will, Terry. We're going to time that out, and we'll do that here in the next few weeks. All right. Thank you, Ronnie. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Yeah, Ronnie Castiglione. I'll tell you what, the white bass, I know I talk about my YouTube channel, but so much of it was filmed right here. Um, I have a show right on Boyd where we use little uh, surface baits and just, it was a fish on every cast. So if you go to the Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, you can watch that action just the way he is describing it. We're going to take time out and we come back, we'll wrap things up and we might even talk a little sports with Dan Jacobs on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors and 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. A couple quick things I want to go over real quick is we talked about a lot of fishing and hunting on the show today. Almost every fishing opportunity we covered on the show today, whether it was the Pooter and Joe Wright, the Colorado River, the white bass in Lake John, the white bass on uh, Boyd Reservoir here, Almost all of those are available on my YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, on those exact bodies of water. And we talked about jug fishing for catfish. We have a show on that. We did it in Texas, but we show you the techniques. So go to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook. Not only our Facebook is Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. We put some of the better podcasts from this show. We link to those every week. We put a trivia is coming back. When I get back from my Minnesota trip in a couple weeks, we're going to start trivia again. We have prizes between $50 and $100. The answer to the trivia question, Karen almost always puts that on our Facebook page the week before we ask the question. So you're loaded and ready to go. 
and we get fishing reports, not only fishing reports from parks and wildlife, but personal reports from being on the water that we share with you or from our friends. There's a lot of information. If you like what you're on the show, follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, before we get too late into the show, and he claims Dan, is Dan there? I'm here. Dan's not, oh, you are there. It's the All highlight right. of the show. It's Dan, Dan right. Jacobs' crosstalk wait, wait. segment. See, I was getting, I was getting information that you, you weren't there yet. I'm working on my on show. The... I had to do a rundown. We do a lot of production. Well, yeah, on the wait show. a minute. You actually prepare for yes, that that l- you put out? A lot of preparation. Wow. The big no, time hey, production, Terry. Yeah. Hey, I have a question for. I want to run this by you while we got time. I know we're everybody's going to want to talk about the quarterback choice, but I keep hearing how incredible the Broncos' defense was against Seattle and was against Minnesota. There was no Russell Wilson. Not all the starters played for Seattle. They actually started a guy named Mr. Magoo. That's that's true. And I I, I know, but then the the first two drives, they were moving the ball at will until they had penalties stop them. The defense didn't stop them. So, I mean, I'm not saying the defense is bad. And nobody talks about the fact that they were going up and down the field. They had penalties. They didn't score. You're talking about the offense? Which, or the, no, the defense. Oh, oh the, the defense. Our, yeah, I mean, listen, I don't put much stock into anything that happened into the preseason games. They played nice. They played consistent. None of the Broncos' opponents played their top guys. So I'm not reading too much into anything in these preseason games. There were nice little exercises. Listen, we're not reading too much into the tea leaves. I, like I said, they literally played against a guy named Mr. Magoo. Literally, that was the guy's and they, name. And they moved the ball at will. They actually right. stopped themselves. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying the Broncos' defense doesn't have potential to be really good. They will it, be. They it, will. It does. Yes. It, and I think, but I, I was not super impressed, so everybody oohed on him. Now, before I go, and I, have to, and I start stealing your time, I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but just give me your... 30-second version of what you think about the quarterback decision. Well, it was inevitable. Like, I, I, I told people this right before the start. Listen, Vic Fangio is coaching for his head coaching life. He's, he's never more than two or three weeks away from perhaps being fired. It's a short-term proposition for him. There's no question that Teddy Bridgewater right now is a better quarterback than Drew Locke. Of course he's going to go with the veteran that for, for, for Vic Fangio is going to give him the best chance to win games right now. Drew Locke didn't come out. Drew Locke was getting yanked from the huddle two weeks ago in practice. You think he's going to be the starter? Of course not. This was inevitable. Would I have done it? No, but that's not because you know Drew Locke was better or because he has this high ceiling, You know this myth of Drew Locke. It's because they need to rebuild the whole thing and go young to begin with. So I have a whole different philosophy philosophy other than this fool's gold philosophy they're going with. But I, this was inevitable. I saw it coming. Listeners of the Dan Jacobs show knew this was coming. All right. Well, I will let you tell the people all about that. I will let you go, and I'll close this out. So close you it can out get with the Beatles. No, we don't do Here comes the, the sun. I'm not anti-Beatles, but you know what we're closing the show with. And by the way, in a few weeks, we'll, we may be closing it with my new album. So That's there. Right. Terry and the Rattlers. No, it, you'll hear about it when it comes out. All right, we'll wrap it up. This is uh, Terry Hookstrom Outdoors. We're wrapping up the show. We're giving you the pleasure 
of staying on and listening to Jan Jacobs. Follow us every Saturday from 9 to 11. Follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Karen. We'll let the Eagles take us to Dan Jacob and Sports on 104.3 The Fan.